which I think can get us off on the right foot as we begin this new season together. So I invite you to open to John 20. Uh, we'll be looking at pages uh, or verses 19 to 23, and that's on page 769 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you, if that's the Bible you're using. So that's John 20, verses 19 to 23. Some of you, um, I, I'm sure, have read the story about Mike Mulligan and Marianne the Steam Shovel, especially if you have kids. It's a children's book about a man and his beloved machine, and they were both hardworking and industrious and skilled, but they were nevertheless finding themselves in the story to be a dying breed pushed out of business by the new diesel shovels, which could dig faster and cheaper. I would say that the church in North America, in many ways, finds itself in a similar situation. You may have heard the phrases post-Christian or post-Christendom. What do these phrases mean? Well, let me see if I can paint a picture. The U.S. and the rest of the Western world have been changing in the past half century. Has anyone noticed? <laughs> According to the American Religious Identification Survey, for the first time since 1900, and it may, may, well, it may well be the first time since the founding of our country, Protestants are about to become the minority in the U.S. Catholicism has been declining, too, in recent decades. Also, increasingly, when people do search for God, they don't consider the church a likely place to find him, believe it or not. There's a, a growing suspicion of organized religion, which this reflects. They might be more likely to tune into Oprah or to pick up a book that she recommends or uh, otherwise to look in the media or in other sources for um, some direction in their spirituality. As this recent book title observes, they like Jesus, but not the church. That's a growing perspective in society. And a USA Today Gallup poll in January of 2002 found that only half of American adults consider themselves religious, while a growing number, 33%, say they're spiritual, but not religious. According to pollster George Barna and others, millions of churchgoers are leaving churches. And while some are leaving because their faith is just no longer a priority to them. They're busy with other things. A growing number are leaving exactly because they're passionate about their faith and they haven't found churches to be a good place to help them grow. Do you know any of these people? I, I know some of them. This ambivalence about church is particularly prevalent among young people. Barna reports that while half of Americans over 40 attend church, that number drops to 40% for 30-somethings, and it drops to 30% for 20-somethings. Meanwhile, society as a whole has been pushing Christianity out of public life. You can look at this recent Newsweek magazine cover article last April. Some of you maybe get Newsweek. The decline and fall of Christian America. As Evangelicals in recent decades have gotten increasingly tangled up in politics and they've drawn the fire of the media. It adds to the public's propensity to view Christianity with dislike or suspicion. So just last week, the Christian Science Monitor published some Gallup poll data that said that about 20% of Americans feel at least a little prejudice against Christians. In fact, Americans are more likely to feel prejudiced against Christians, according to this survey, than against Jews or Buddhists. 
I think Archbishop of Canterbury, a uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, George Carey, summed up well society's perspective toward the church today. The church is a toothless old woman sitting in a corner, mumbling sweet nothings to herself. Now this could all be very discouraging. Like Mike Mulligan and Mary Ann, the church could conclude that our day is over and that the world has moved on and so we just need to close the windows and lock the doors and hunker down and see how many more years we can hold out until we fade away. But I have good news for us this morning. There's hope. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we find encouragement that churches can thrive and grow even in a post-Christian culture like ours. Well, what does it take to thrive and grow? Well, as we'll see, all it takes is to have the resurrected Christ in our midst and to let him call the shots. But there's the catch. If we're going to let the risen Christ navigate us through the troubled waters of post-Christian America, we can't expect that he'll simply let us keep doing things the way we've always done them. Let's take a look at our passage. This is Jesus' second resurrection appearance in John's Gospel. This past Easter, we looked at, at the first as Jesus transformed the world of Mary Magdalene when he showed himself to her alive in the garden that Eastern morning. And now later, that same evening, the risen Christ makes himself known to his disciples who are gathered in an upper room. Notice Jesus, uh, John calls these folks disciples. Had John wanted to refer to the 12 apostles whom Jesus had commissioned to represent him to the world, he would have called them the 12. Or after Judas's betrayal and death, he would have called them the 11. But here he says that Jesus appeared to the disciples, meaning a representative group of Jesus' followers. Perhaps many of the apostles were there, but that's not the point. It, they were disciples. They were followers of Jesus. In other words, what's about to happen in this story isn't just for the privileged few leaders. It's for all followers of Jesus. Notice the mood of these folks when Jesus finds them. They're huddled together. The doors are locked. They're full of fear. Why? Well, they just watched their master die a terrible, gruesome death, and, and they're afraid that they might be next. And you know, it seems to me that there's a real culture of fear among evangelical Christians today about the direction of our country, about the influences on our children. Have you sensed it? Have you sensed the fear? If we really think about it, though, I suspect that if we're afraid, it must be because we, like those early disciples, really believe deep down in our heart of hearts that Jesus is not alive. That he's not really the risen and reigning Lord of all. Well, Jesus came to those fearful disciples who thought he was dead and they stood, or he stood in their midst. Jesus, who, who they'd seen beaten and crucified and, and buried behind a stone in, in a tomb, is now suddenly standing among them, alive, perfectly and totally alive. When the risen Christ stands among us, everything changes. 
Jesus says to his disciples, peace to you. And as you probably know, the Jewish word for peace, which Jesus would have used, conveys far more than the English word. The Jewish word peace, shalom, conveys complete and total well-being, uh, health and prosperity and fruitfulness and wholeness and flourishing. Pastor and commentator Bruce Milne remarks about shalom, it gathers up all the blessings of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus had died and, and because he had risen again, he could now truly offer shalom in a way which had never been possible before. The disciples, understandably, are overjoyed. This is the dream that they didn't dare to dream amazingly come true. The one they love is with them again. As big as life, good things are going to happen. You know, whenever we lose our joy, we need to ask ourselves whether we've lost touch with the risen Jesus. We may still have him in our doctrines and in our beliefs and in our disciplines and our routines, but have we lost him in his reality as, as a real person who we have a real relationship with? I don't know about you, but that's true for me. When, when I draw close to Jesus, I very often feel joy and contentment and, and I feel full. But, but when I lose touch with him, joy becomes a, a fragile and a flighty thing. So look at Jesus' church here in the upper room. Without the risen Christ, they're gripped with fear, they're threatened, they, they've got the doors locked. But with the risen Christ, they're overflowing with joy. Let me ask you, which church, the joyful one or the fearful one, has a better chance of sharing news, which is really good news? and a better chance of introducing uh, Jesus to the world in a compelling way. Which church? And introducing Jesus to the world is just what Jesus calls his people to next, isn't it? Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, Jesus tells his followers, so I am sending you. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And these words, perhaps more than any other, these words have been helping Christians in a post-Christian world to rediscover who we are. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, Jesus says to his followers. These words are packed with significance. Let's take some time to unpack them. Let's begin with the last word, you. I am sending you. The you is plural, like it almost always is in the New Testament. The idea that we're all to go off individually and be witnesses to Jesus and, and then to bring our converts back to church is largely a modern Western misunderstanding of what Jesus is calling us to do. Because everywhere in the New Testament, Jesus has called us together to be a community, to pursue and know God as a community, to love one another, growing together as a community, to reach out also to show Christ together as a community. Sure, we aren't always together. Sure, we've all have, or we all have an individual part to play, but our individual role is secondary from a New Testament perspective. 
The primary reality is that we as a church have been sent together by Jesus as a mission team into the world, each with a unique gift to contribute and a unique role to play on that team. Next, notice the first verb in this sentence, has sent. The Father has sent the Son. This verb is in the perfect tense, and if you talk to a Greek grammatician, which you probably don't do very often, uh, he will tell you, or she will tell you at, at the cocktail party, that this perfect tense verb represents a past action which has a continuing present result. A past action with a present result. So, the Father has sent the Son on a mission in the past, and that sentness continues into the present, is the idea. Now that Jesus has died and risen again, in other words, his mission isn't finished. It continues, but now it takes a new form. Now, the way that Jesus goes about his mission that he's sent on is to send his followers to represent him. And so Bruce Milne explains, what Jesus has in mind, therefore, is not a double mission, first Jesus' mission, and then afterwards our mission. Rather, it is one single action, the great movement of the missionary heart of God, sending forth his Son into the world. The one mission of God has two phases. The first, that the Son, or I'm sorry, the first, that of the Son in his incarnate life. The second, that of the Son in his risen life through his people. There's only one mission. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That mission is not complete. God's work of salvation is not complete until the church goes at the bidding of Jesus and shares that good news. One mission. Bruce Milne adds, this means that mission must have the same importance for the church as it had for Jesus. So how are we to do it? How are we to do it? Answer? in the same way that Jesus did it. That's the force of those little connecting words, and and so, or I'm sorry, as and so. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In the same way that the Father has sent me, so in that same way I am sending you. So how did the Father send the Son? Well, the answer to that question is huge. We, we need to soak ourselves in John's whole gospel to get the full effect of it. But let me just hit some highlights this morning. How did the Father send the Son? First, the Father sent the Son to reveal the Father. Jesus didn't come with his own agenda, right? He, he came only to show people the Father. And so he told people, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Why? Because I have come from the Father. The Father and I are one, Jesus said. I only do what I see my Father doing. I only say what the Father gives me to say. And likewise, people need to be able to look at us and to see the Son. 
Our goal through our lives and through our words is to help people see Jesus, just as Jesus helped people to see the Father. So that's the first thing. Second, the Father sent the Son to suffer and to sacrifice. Notice that right before Jesus sent his followers in our passage, he showed them his wounds. He assures us, this is in another passage, no servant is greater than his master. If they treated the master like this, how do you think they'll treat the servant? Will they treat the servant any differently? Jesus didn't conquer by sword or, or by political clout. No, he came to be weak. He, he came to, be, to serve. And he bids us to do the same. But do we really believe him? Do we really believe that we can accomplish his mission this way? It seems counterintuitive to say the least. Third, the father sent his son onto our own turf. God could have set his son up on a royal throne on the top of a mountain somewhere in all of his glory flanked by angel armies. And he could have bid the whole world to come and to bow down and to obey his son. But no, God sent his son as, as a peasant baby who grew up among common people, as a common man like us. Jesus went to us. He, he dwelt among us. He came to our turf. And we too are called to go, to be among the people that Jesus is sending us to. Fourth, the Father sent the Son to offer forgiveness. Verse 23. Jesus died on the cross so our sins could be forgiven. So that sinful people could have a new beginning, a fresh start. So that, so that our guilt and our shame could be washed away in a, in a flood of grace. And, and Jesus came and he surrounded himself with sinners and he offered that forgiveness to them. And he calls us to do the same. To show them that God will forgive them and accept them no matter what they've done. And of course, part of showing this is that we've got to forgive those who have sinned against us. Fifth, God sent Jesus to bring shalom. Jesus not only came to reconcile us to God, but to make all things new. That's why he healed the sick. He, he cast out demons. He, he fed the hungry. He calmed the storm. We've already seen that shalom is creation healed. It's brokenness mended. It's strife reconciled. It's chaos subdued. It's brotherhood and sisterhood and unity. It's all things made right and made new. That makes the good news even gooder news. <laughs> as we as his people share that good news in word and, and as we live it out in deed and bring shalom wherever we can. Sixth, finally, the Father sent the Son in the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus sends us, he, he breathes on his followers and he says, receive that Holy Spirit. This is an act of new creation by the power of God. Just as at the first creation, God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and then he breathed into him and he became a living being. So now Jesus breathes on us 
by the Holy Spirit and gives us new life into a new creation. How else could it be? How else will we be able to show people what Jesus is like? How else will we ever be motivated or sustained on a path of suffering and sacrifice? Or, or on a path of leaving our comfort zones to go and meet people on their own turf? How else will we be able to forgive others or, or to make them understand that God has forgiven them? How else will we bring God's shalom to the world? How else but by the Holy Spirit, the power of God, the life of God to bring about a new creation? That's how the Father sent the Son. That's how the Son sends us. Well, in the time we have remaining, let me draw several implications for us today from this passage as we struggle to be the church in post-Christian America. What I want to do now is I want to contrast who we're called to be in this passage. I'll call us the missional church, the church sent on God's mission. And I'll contrast that with the inherited church, the mode of church that we've inherited from our forebearers since the fourth century when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the uh, Roman Empire, and the church came to enjoy power and prestige, and they were at the center of Western society, a position that they enjoyed more or less down to the past half century or so, and it's been eroding since then, maybe even before then. The first point of contrast is that the church we inherited sees itself as sending out missionaries, while the missional church sees itself as sent out as missionaries. During the age of Christendom, the church presided over a Christian world. Churches were everywhere, and sure, not everyone was a Christian, but the culture was basically Christian. And it was socially acceptable, even socially expected, to go to church in many places. Everyone had been to church. Everyone knew the Bible stories. They, they understood the concepts of God and, and sin and righteousness. And they knew that sin was wrong, even if they did it. And so it was relatively easy for the church to, to share the gospel with people in, in the course of the church's everyday ministry. That wasn't what you'd call missionary work. That was just day-to-day -day ministry. Missionaries, they were those who were sent overseas for that tough job of reaching totally pagan lands. Please don't send me to Africa was the old song. Well, Leslie Newbegin was such a missionary. He was sent out by the British church to India in the 1930s, 1936. And he was there in India for nearly 40 years as a missionary. And then he came home in 1973, home to Britain. And he quickly realized that something had fundamentally changed in his home country while he'd been gone those 40 years. While he was gone, Britain had become the mission field. Newbegin was one of the first to issue the wake-up call to the Western Church, a call that we still haven't fully grasped today. Look around you. You live in a pagan land now. You live on the mission field. You live in a foreign culture, spiritually speaking. The natives don't understand your Christian language or your Christian culture. And they're wary and suspicious of you. That's why few of them are coming to your churches anymore. 
If we're going to reach today's America, we're going to have to step outside of our churches and go to people on their own turf as cross-cultural missionaries, just like Leslie Newbegin did in India. We're going to have to recapture our identity as a people not only sending out missionaries, but also as people sent by Christ as missionaries to the people around us. The second implication, the second contrast, is that the church we've inherited is bent on survival, but the missional church is called to sacrifice. Society used to listen to the church. We used to have clout. Our clergy enjoyed respect in society. I remember my father, who was a pastor for a while, getting discounts different places because he was clergy. I haven't been offered those same discounts. <laughs> Our scriptures were engraved on public buildings. Our prayers were in schools. Our values were, if not embraced, at least aspired to by society. We had connections in high places. We had buildings. We had money. We had rights. We had freedoms. We had privileges. And now we bemoan the fact that we're losing these things, inch by inch, bit by bit. We see our public influence, and we see our churches shrinking, and we become preoccupied with surviving. And yet Jesus enjoyed none of these powers or privileges that we have historically enjoyed. Yet, by suffering and weakness through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus nevertheless turned the world upside down. When are we going to wake up to the fact that victory is not found, or I'm sorry, when are we going to wake up to the fact that victory is found in taking the path that our master took? That it's when we sacrifice for others, when we sacrifice for God, that people wake up and take notice and their hearts are touched. But when we throw around our power and our influence, we only make people resentful. And they learn nothing about a crucified Messiah. The third contrast is that the church we inherited is, in, is attractional, but the missional church is incarnational. There used to be a church on just about every corner with its doors open. And the goal of every church that wanted to grow was to get as many people as possible to come inside. And this wasn't a, a huge challenge. If you had some money, if you were talented, if you could put together a, a good plan. Because everyone knew when, what, went on in, when, when, <laughs> what went on inside of churches. People, people knew what went on. They'd grown up in church or they'd been there with their family regularly or for uh, uh, an occasion now and then. They knew the drill. They understood church culture and church language. And so it was a small step to step inside. All churches had to do was find a, a way to attract them back. Churches were attractional. But those days are fading year by year, decade by decade. People increasingly see our attractional efforts as cheap marketing gimmicks, trying to sell them a product that they don't want. And fewer and fewer are coming. And if they did come, many of them might have no clue what we were doing or talking about in here. What is it, some kind of karaoke that we do, this singing with words on the screen? But why do we even expect them to come to us? God didn't ask us to come to him until he first went to us. 
God got down on our level. He, he came and he lived among us. And he has sent his followers to do the same. To go to people, to, to meet them where they're at. And, and, and not just to do that alone as individuals, but to find ways to do that together. To go to people as a church. Now, how do we do that? Well, I've talked a good bit to our elders about missional communities. And they've been encouraging me to preach on that. Um, and I think this is my moment. So what is a missional community? Let me give you an example. Imagine a biker with his Harley covered with leather and tattoos. And he likes to hang out in a parking lot across the street from a nice white church. And every Sunday morning, he sees the clean-cut people in their shirts and ties and their skirts and blouses going into that church. And they're not his type of people. They're not his culture. What reason does he have to go to that church? He wouldn't be comfortable there. You know, they drive minivans. He rides a Harley. They uh, eat ham dinners on Sunday or something like that. He eats fried chicken and drinks beer. They uh, probably listen to Christian radio. He listens to Z100. But what if a couple of new bikers came into town on their Harleys with their leather, hanging out, eating fried chicken, and they got to know our biker and, and, and his friends, and they became part of his crowd, and they started to share their love for this guy, Jesus. And there's something different about these new guys. You see, they really care about the other bikers. They, they even sacrifice to help them out when they get a chance, when, when someone needs help. And some bikers are drawn to them and to this guy, Jesus, and they even start following him over time. But, but these new Christian bikers, they don't just drag these new converts over to the church across the street. No, they, they do church right there among the bikers, biker style. Maybe it doesn't look very much like what happens in other churches, but, but they connect with God, they, they grow in their faith, they, they grow in their relationships with one another, and, and they reach out to their friends, their biker friends especially. That's a missional community. And the lower Hudson Valley needs dozens of such communities in the 21st century to reach lots of unreached people groups, lots of subcultures, lots of tribes who are unlikely to ever darken the door of a church. Now reaching the biker culture is an obvious example of going cross-cultural, but what we need to realize is that in these days, the cultural differences can be just as great between us and people who look and dress a whole lot like us. The cultural differences can be just as big. And it's only getting more this way as the years go by. So we need missional communities to reach young parents. The family connection is trying to figure out how to do that. We need missional communities to reach single mothers, to reach environmentalists, to reach social activists, to reach IBMers, to reach neighborhoods, etc., etc. The church doesn't have to become like Mike Mulligan and Marianne, obsolete and out of a job in post-Christian America. No, the risen Christ is still living out his, his loving, saving mission sent by the Father. And he wants to be in our midst, leading us to do the same. Now, I can imagine that there are two different reactions you might be feeling right now. 
Some of you may be saying, yes, finally, I've been sensing this. When are we going to get started? And others are probably saying, I'm not sure what he's talking about, but it sure sounds scary and uncertain. And both are valid responses at this point. And I hope what I can do this morning is to open a conversation and that in the days and months ahead, some of you can learn more and ask questions and, and understand better. And others of us, others can maybe get busy doing something about this. Right now, Christians all over the Western world are experimenting and trying to figure this stuff out for their own contexts. It looks one way in Seattle. It looks another way in Manhattan. It looks another way in Atlanta. It looks another way in Westchester County. It's new territory for all of us. And some people thrive on change and innovation and the unknown, and other people avoid it whenever possible. So whatever your reaction, please be praying and be discussing this with one another, be talking to me, talking to the elders as we prayerfully try to figure out together how to go forward as the church as we celebrate 40 years together and then begin looking toward the 50th. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you took to heart the heart of your father, which was your father. You didn't stay in your comfortable place, but you came, you walked among us, you found us, you loved us, you sacrificed for us, you died for us. And for whatever reason, you chose not to instantly set up your kingdom or to whisk us out of this world, but rather you've called us to live out that same pattern to those around us. And as we grapple with what that means for us in the 21st century, I pray that you'd give us patience, wisdom, security amidst our insecurity, and that you'd go before us um, powerfully, mightily, and show us step by step how to follow you. Amen.